over the course of the summer, we've been walking specifically through what are called the five solas. These are kind of five sort of core convictions uh, that shaped the, the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. They're uh, wonderfully depicted on our back wall by these uh, images that also serve as like soundproof paneling, so it's very economic and also highly fashionable. And so we've been walking together through these sort of reasons why uh, Protestants and, and Roman Catholics broke with one another, these convictions that were so important that they required something of a, of a division among Christians. Uh, and I said this the first week that we started this series, and I feel like it's important to just hold out every single week. My intention in walking through these things is not to bash Roman Catholics. So like if you're the sort of person who just really likes to win at arguments and you've been taking notes so that you can crush your Roman Catholic friend the next time you're at Starbucks and the topic of Mary comes up, one, shame on you. Uh, B, I hope I've given you no ammunition here uh, because that's not my desire. Um, there, there's a great deal that, that we as Protestants alongside Roman Catholics can agree on. There's a lot that we can sort of link arms around and say we affirm these things together. Uh, Roman Catholics along with Protestants affirm the doctrine of the Trinity uh, in its fullness. Uh, Luther, Calvin, all these sort of early reformers would have said we have no disagreement at all on the doctrine of God with Roman Catholics. So we're on the same page there. Um, maybe you were with us last summer, we walked through a study of the Apostles' Creed, this sort of ancient Christian confession of faith. We did that in our life groups and in different small group settings. Uh, this is something that, that we can say alongside our Roman Catholic friends with full confidence. And not just the Apostles' Creed, but a whole bunch of other creeds that come after it. Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, Athanasian Creed. Some of you are like, what the heck is any of this? I promise you it's good. Um, but it's something that we and our Catholic friends, we can agree on. We're on the same page here. When it comes to the person of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, there's no disagreement there whatsoever. We are on the same page. But there are differences. We are not one communion for a reason. No relationship is ever mended by pretending that the conflict doesn't exist. And, and so my hope here is that we would just acknowledge that, that this is, or these are rather, the reasons why there's some distinction. And, and they're not small reasons. But, but here's the other thing that's, that's really important to me, is that we're not just sort of sitting around and going, hey, isn't it cool that we're not Catholic? Uh, but rather, that, that we're talking about these things in a way that shapes our Christian life. Uh, we're talking about these things in a way that affects how we relate to our friends and to our neighbors and to one another, how we worship, how we approach God. These are not just sort of talking points for a debate. These are things that should inform the way that you pray. They should inform the way that you're a member here at this church or whatever church you go to. So, so that's, that's my hope in going through these points, not to start a war, not to give you a whole lot of impressive Latin terms that you can use to woo your friends at Starbucks uh, but that we can sort of lay hold of some realities that are important in faith shaping. So we've walked through three of these five solas, the, the first of which is sola scriptura. We confess that the Bible alone is the final authority for the church. Our Catholic friends would say that scripture and tradition interpreted by the magisterium is the final authority. The next one that we walk through is sola gratia, by grace alone we are saved, whereas our, our Catholic friends would say that cooperating with God's grace allows us ultimately to be saved in the end. There was a week that I was out of town, I think they described uh, the place that I went as like a monk retreat in the mountains, it really kind of was, um, but Shane Drury, our high school pastor, 
spoke on faith alone, that it's by faith alone that we're justified before God, whereas our Catholic friends would say that it's our faith combined with our works in the end that makes us right before God. And this week we come to Solus Christus. It's by Christ alone that we are right before God. And our Catholic friends would say, yeah, duh. And that might surprise you. It might surprise you because I think very often we're, we're sort of convinced into thinking that there are these radical and explicit differences between Catholics and Protestants. So, so let me just say this. On paper, our Catholic friends would say, obviously, you're saved by Christ alone. Like, what a, what a dumb thing to point out. Everybody knows that. Um, but what the Reformers noticed is that while that's affirmed on paper in practice, that's just not how things work. And, and this happens all the time in our day and age, right? You've got the husband who tells his wife every night before bed, I love you, and then the way that he lives does not affirm that in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) You've got, in a whole lot of instances, the politician who says that they care about justice, but their voting record totally undermines that. Uh, You've got the, the individual who says that they're a friend of yours, but the way that they conduct themselves and speak about you says that they're probably not actually friends, or at least their definition of friendship is radically different from the Oxford English Dictionary. Right, what, what's said on paper is not actually how things play out. And that's where the difference here lies. Um, if, if you would like to know what Roman Catholics believe, uh, one, don't listen to Pope Francis at all. Um, and two, read what's called the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's an enormous book. It'll make you look really impressive. Uh, so you don't even have to read it. Just sit with it on a table at a coffee shop and look off into the distance and people will think you're a genius. I've been neck deep in the Catechism of the Catholic Church for the last two weeks, and and as you kind of work through it, you see these great moments. Like, there are parts in this book that I just have, like, underlined, highlighted, circled, I'm quoting this in a sermon, this is awesome, and and then you just trip over these passages where you're like, like, one of these things is not like the other. How how on earth do these two things relate to one another? And so you you come to these passages that talk about how it's Christ alone that saves, and then you you come to a passage like this on Mary that should be up on the screen behind me. It says that Mary is taken up into heaven. That's the Bible. This is not the Bible. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, if you don't have it, that's cool. I'll just read it for you. It says this, that Mary is taken up into heaven, and she doesn't set aside her saving office but by her manifold intercession brings us the gifts of eternal salvation. And you go, huh, that seems a little different from what you said earlier. Or or, or you read a little bit further and you get to uh, the statement on the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and there's a ton of stuff that I would like underline and circle and say, yes, absolutely, 200%. But then you come to things like this. The same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner in the bread and wine in the mass. And you go, well, so if Christ's death happened once for all, why is he offered again and again and again every Sunday in every Catholic church throughout the world? And so there's this sense in which you go, I, I, know, I know what you say, but how do, you, how do you reconcile these things? I know we say that Christ is exclusive, but how does that relate to what's being said here? So that's maybe one of the reasons that drove this 500 years ago, but this statement that it's Christ alone through which we approach God, I would say that it probably has run into some modern challenges too. It's not just sort of an ancient controversy. Uh, last summer, 
There was a a discussion that sort of flew under the radar that happened in the Senate. There was a a particular individual who's nominated for a post, um, and there was a senator who was asking him questions to see if he was fit for office. And this particular individual uh, had written earlier in his career that he believed that outside of Christ there was no salvation, that salvation came through Christ alone. And the senator who was sort of asking him these questions was totally outraged at that prospect. How dare you say that anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is condemned? Do you really think that anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is condemned? I can't even believe that you would say something like that. So it's, it's not just this sort of ancient thing, but, but even now when we say that Christ alone is the only way we approach God, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And that, that's an understandably challenging thing to say. We live in an era where you can open up your laptop and you can find 10,000 different religions on Wikipedia. There was a time where you maybe heard about other people who believed other things, but you would never meet them or hear anything about them. The world has shrunk. And this claim becomes more radical with time as we encounter more and more and more different ways of thinking. To say only one of these is right, only one of these gets you to God, that's a bold claim. And so my hope is that tonight as we sort of work through the scriptures together, we might begin to understand why it is that Christians have historically said that Jesus Christ is the only way to approach God, that no man will come to the Father but by him. If you've got your Bible, do me a favor, turn into the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll be in verses 5 through to 7. Uh, We may start a little bit earlier just to get some context. While you're doing that, let me give you some context. Um, So, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, the book of Titus, these are the last letters that we have written by the Apostle Paul. They're probably put together sometime between 65 and 67 AD. This is at the end of Paul's life. He's probably in prison, very likely awaiting death. Uh, He knows that he's not going to get out of this one. Uh, there's no like MacGyver tricks. Th- this is really the end of the road for him. And what's, what's interesting about this is uh, you can read other letters from Paul in the New Testament and First, Second Timothy and Titus, they all sound very different from Paul's other letters. And it's not just different in the sense that like this guy knows he's about to die and he's kind of freaking out a little bit. Uh, he uses different words. The pacing is different. The language is different. And uh, there's a reason why I think that's the case, and, and maybe this will kind of help you as you work through the letter on your own, which hopefully you'll do. Um, the circumstances in which Paul's writing, he's in prison, he's probably been tortured, he knows he's going to die, and there's an awful lot of hints throughout the rest of the New Testament that Paul probably had a problem with his eyesight. And so it's very likely that at this point, under the strain of what he's going through, Paul probably can't actually see very well anymore. And so it's very possible that Paul himself with his own hand didn't even write this letter, which would account for the difference in language. What actually happened, and this was a really common practice in the ancient world, is that Paul had a friend of his write the letter for him, and Paul said, I want you to say this, and the person would write it, and he would read it back, and he'd go, okay, that's good, now I want you to say this. So he's dictating this letter to somebody who's writing it down for him. And we don't know, it's not in the Bible, I can't tell you for certain, but I can tell you this, Uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul starts using a lot of medical language. He starts describing sin in terms of a disease and an infection. He starts talking about the Christian life in terms that a doctor would use. He starts talking a lot like the book of Luke and Acts. And so here's what I'm inclined to think based on that is that what's probably happening is that Paul is at the end of his life. He can't see, he can't write, but Luke is there with him writing down what Paul says. 
And then he's reading it back and he's going, is this what you want to say? And he said, couldn't have said it better myself and that medical thing sounds great. Yeah, let's definitely use that. So, so what you're probably seeing in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus is actually the voice of Paul through the pen of Luke, which gives it some really interesting texture. And Paul is writing to a Christian pastor in Ephesus named Timothy who seems like just a very nervous individual. He seems just very paranoid, which I readily identify with. And Paul is writing to him to help him understand how to lead the church in the face of false teaching and what the worship of the church should look like. And so he starts by saying this in chapter two, verse one. First then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on and he says this, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus. So he starts by telling Paul, listen, the church that you're, Paul is telling Timothy, the church that you're pastoring, what I wanna make sure happens here is that you pray and that you pray for all sorts of people. So if you're wondering why we pray so much here, kind of because that's what Paul said to do. Like, first of all, of the utmost importance, pray when you gather together. But then he starts listing all these categories of people, kings, rulers, authorities, people in high positions. This would have hit Timothy exactly in the wrong way because it's the kings and it's the rulers and it's the authorities that now have Paul in prison and are going to execute him. And he's saying, yeah, pray for all those people. And don't just pray that they change their mind and let me out. Pray for them fervently. And then he makes this statement. This pleases God who desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And here's what I think Paul's getting at, and then we'll get to our text for the evening. Um, Paul is saying to Timothy this. Uh, God is interested in saving all sorts of people, even the ones that you wouldn't expect, like the politicians and the kings and the rulers and the authorities. So I'm asking you, pray for all these different sorts of people. This pleases God who desires that out of all of these sorts of people, salvation would come. And so that's his appeal and then he gets to our text for the evening he sort of grounds his command in this verse five there's one god there's one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time paul says this pray for all people because there's only one god and that that may not make a lot of sense to us like these two things don't necessarily connect but, but here's the, the underlying logic of this. In Paul's day, humanity is fragmented by ethnicity, by occupation, by national boundaries, and by religion, which is certainly true in our day as well. But within Paul's world, you're not just a Jew or a Greek or a Roman, uh, but you're also a warrior or a craftsman or a coppersmith or, or any of these other things. And so you might be a Roman, and a soldier, which means that you worship the Roman god of war. There is a, like, there is a tailor-made god exactly for your nationality and for your job. So I, I don't know what the modern equivalent would be. Like, I don't know what the patron god of fast food employees would be or anything like that. But, but in Paul's day and age, there's a god for everything. And if this is your job and this is your nationality, then you worship your god. And very often people would say, well, you know, my soldier neighbor friend, uh, you should talk to your Roman god of war and see if he can help you out with that. And it was a way of dismissing other people's needs. Pass it off to whatever their god is. 
But here's what Paul says, there's only one God, which means that you have to pray for everybody because it means that he's the God of everybody and it means that everybody bears the image of the one God. So you don't get off by saying, why don't you pray to your Roman war God? There's not one, there's just God. He says, pray for all people. And then he says this, there's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This phrase, mediator, the the first time that I heard it uh, was actually in high school. There was a program called the Peer Mediation Program. And I'm just going to be honest, I, I didn't really pay attention to it very much. I didn't pay attention to much of anything in high school. I went to Newsom. It was a nightmare. But... Insofar as I understood it, you could sign up for peer mediation and you would get a little bit of training if you, if you wanted to volunteer there about how to help people who were having a conflict resolve their differences. And then presumably, two high school students, and I've never known any high school students this mature, would say, we're at odds with one another. Let's sit down for peer mediation. Nobody in my life did that. They just got in fistfights and that's how they resolve things. But, but theoretically, that's how it worked. You've got two parties who are in conflict, and you sign up for peer mediation, and you sit down, and somebody lets you explain your differences to one another, and hopefully things work out at the end. If you were a part of that program and it worked, please let me know. <laughs> um, the point being this, that, that mediation assumes that there's a conflict between the two parties involved. Like, like maybe you've even played like unofficial mediator. You've got two friends who aren't talking. And so you get the in-between text of like, Tommy says that you need to tell Timmy that they're not friends anymore, and Timmy says that you need to tell Tommy that he hates his hair and thinks his glasses are dumb, and, and, and you end up going back and forth. You're the go-between for these two people who are at odds. The point is this. Mediation assumes conflict. And Paul says there is a mediator between God and man, which means that things are not right between God and man. So what's the nature of the conflict? If I could summarize a whole lot of Bible in a very short period of time, I would say this, God created a good world, mankind in his image, charged humanity with the care of creation to the glory of its creator. Humanity corporately as a whole and individually in each of our lives have failed at this task by rejecting the love of God, violating the law of God, and setting our face against him so that now we find ourselves under his wrath. That is is the nature of our scenario. And maybe you're not a Christian or maybe this is your first time back at church and you're like, that sounds a little bit extreme. Like I I watch the news. I I read the history books. I know the really bad things people have done and I'm not guilty of any of those things. And I I think that's that's a reasonable question. I, I, I too watch the news on the treadmill at the gym. And I, too, read the history books, and there's some really bad things that have happened. And if, if we're simply comparing what we do to what has been done by the worst examples of our human race, then, then maybe we can get off with not being so bad. But uh, there's a pastor out in Portland named uh, Joshua Ryan Butler. I was having a conversation with him for a podcast, and he works in the missions department of his church. And so uh, one of the things that he does is he spends a lot of time overseas in underprivileged communities, underprivileged countries, and so he's seen victims of genocide. He's seen people in extreme poverty, and his first reaction in encountering all this was like, I am nowhere near as bad as these people. 
not the victims, but the perpetrators. I'm nowhere near as bad as the people who commit genocide. I'm nowhere near as bad as sort of the warlords and the corrupt governments that keep people in this systematic position of poverty. But, but then he started to be a little bit more thoughtful about it. What, what is it that causes people to establish systems that suppress others and, and monopolize resources that could be shared so that poverty could be solved? What is it that causes things like genocide? Well, murder, genocide, they all start with anger. They all start with hatred. Uh, these are the seeds that ultimately give, uh, give up the fruit that you can look in the history books and recoil at, that you can watch the news and be repulsed by. Nobody commits murder who doesn't commit murder in his heart through anger. And he said, I may not be a murderer, I may not have committed genocide, but the seeds that have produced that fruit in the world are in the soil of my heart. No, nobody gets out unscathed in our sinfulness. And so then we find ourselves here in need of a, a mediator. Humanity must atone for our sins, but finite creatures can never satisfy an infinite God. We find ourselves asking this question, what human being could withstand the full force of God's judgment? And we have to answer that, nobody. But then we have to ask this question, who but a human being could atone for human beings' failures? Anselm, the great theologian of Canterbury in the 800s, writes this book called Cur Deus Homo, which means why the God-man, trying to answer the question of the incarnation. And I think he says it so beautifully. He says, no one except for God can satisfy God. Nobody but man ought to make satisfaction for his sins. So it's necessary for us that a God-man save us. This is why we need a mediator. And this is why I don't think it's so ridiculous to make this statement that Christ alone is the only way by which we might approach God. If this is in fact the condition of humanity, if this is the sickness at the heart of what it means to be human, then this is the only possible remedy. There, there, there's a guy in our church right now uh, who I absolutely love. He, in the last few weeks, has just been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, he, he doesn't know exactly uh, where he's at. He doesn't know how long he has or, or if this will even just be something that 10 years from now he looks back on, maybe not fondly, but looks back on with um, with a sense of God's provision. He doesn't know. He's in the testing phases. But, but let's suppose that he goes away down this road and the doctor begins to prescribe explicit treatment. You need to do chemotherapy. You're gonna need to do surgery. Here's all the things you have to do to fix this. And his response is, I know what you said. Why not penicillin? Oh, oh, oh. And the doctor probably looks at him like he's crazy and says, no, listen, you need chemotherapy. Yeah, I heard you, but like seriously, what an intolerant thing to say that I need chemotherapy and I can't just take Robitussin. Here, here's the point. The nature of the sickness dictates the nature of the remedy. You have cancer. You don't have a cold. In order to fix this, this is what must be done. It's the same thing with the human condition. If what the Bible says about humanity is true, then the nature of what it will take to make us right can only be satisfied by somebody like Jesus. The sickness of humanity is such that Christ is the only remedy. If we will be saved, it will be through Christ alone. So, how is it that Christ saves us? Paul says this, there's, there's one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. Um, 
I don't think Paul says that because he doesn't think that Jesus is God. You can read the rest of Paul's letters. It's abundantly clear. He doesn't think that Jesus is just a man, but he's sort of laying hold of a particular truth about the work of Jesus, that in order to save us, God the Son had to become like us. Um, this is going to sound like a roundabout story, but I promise you that it lands somewhere. Uh, I've struggled with anxiety for pretty much since I was a little kid. Like, I can remember in kindergarten be ter- being terrified about things that objectively were just not worth being afraid of. Uh, and occasionally, there are circumstances in my life that sort of cause this anxiety to flare up in different ways. Uh, one of them was my nine-month stint working at Chick-fil-A. Some of you may call it Jesus Chicken. Zaxby's is better. <laughs> we can talk afterwards. <laughs> but here's the deal with Chick-fil-A. To their credit, to their great credit, um, I don't know how other chicken places do it, but Chick-fil-A starts with raw chicken. Like, they're not pre-frozen, pre-cooked patties. It's raw, and they cook it in the back pretty much when you order it. So I was sitting through the training at Chick-fil-A um, with my anxious self, and they told you what I think they should tell you. Hey, you're handling raw chicken. Uh, if you're not careful, people could get sick and die. I took all of that weight onto myself, <laughs> and I felt the full force of the fear that that produced. Um, so at Chick-fil-A, uh, they put me not with the fries where nothing can kill you, but at the raw chicken table where I have the life of my customers in my gloved hands. But they would occasionally call me to other places like, hey, I know you've been doing chicken for 75 hours, but now I need you to do fries. And so here's what would happen. Um, I would have all this raw chicken on my hands, which I knew could kill anyone I touched. <laughs> Maybe that's drastic. This is how I think. And I would take my gloves off, and then I would turn on the faucet, and I would start washing my hands. And then I would turn off the faucet, and I'd dry my hands, and I'd be ready to go do the fries. But then I would think about the fact that some chicken juice probably actually got around the seal of my glove, which means that when I touched the faucet to turn it on, it probably had raw chicken juice on it. So even though I washed my hands, when I turned the faucet off with my clean hands, I came back into contact with the raw chicken juice, which means that I need to actually wash the faucet itself. And so I would actually take the soap and then wash the faucet and then take the soap and wash my hands and then go back and turn the faucet off. But then I would think about the fact that I'm pretty sure I bumped the paper towel dispenser earlier with my raw chicken hands, which means that once I dried my hands off, my hands were contaminated again, and I don't want to kill my customers. And so I would wash my hands. Literally, Chick-fil-A paid me to wash my hands. Like, fundamentally, that is what my paycheck was, to wash my hands 75 times in a row. It's the worst job I've ever had. Whatever. <laughs> so I, I would wash my hands over and over and over again because I, I think logically, and those of you who've been to, like, med school or gone through, like, a pre-med program, validate me or tell me I'm crazy, but... I know a little bit about communicable diseases and germ theory and like it spreads at least in some ways by contact. And so there's this sense of like, I don't, I don't wanna touch things that are contaminated because then I become contaminated. I don't wanna touch things that, that have the potential to make you sick because then there's this potential that if I touch somebody else, then I could make them sick. This is why when like your friends are sick, if you're a terrible friend like me, you don't hang out with them, right? Like you just quarantine them and say, let me know when you're better and then we'll talk again. It's, it's no different in the ancient world, right? There, there is a sense in the ancient world that to come into contact with somebody like leprosy is an almost guarantee that you're gonna develop leprosy. To, to come into contact with somebody who's ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law is going to make you unclean. 
And so those people just didn't come into human contact. Here's what's interesting in the Gospels. Jesus is constantly coming into contact with those people. But rather than Jesus developing leprosy, rather than Jesus being corrupted by them, they're made whole by virtue of contact with him. Here's why this matters. You could ask your average Christian, how did Jesus save us? And the response would be he died on the cross for our sins. And if that were an exam, you would get a 50% because that's only half right. Here's what I need you to grasp. Your salvation did not begin when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate and he was condemned to crucifixion. Your salvation began when the Son of God made contact with your fallen humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Salvation began when God the Son came into contact with every part of us that was corrupt and wicked and fallen. That's why Paul says the man Christ Jesus There's not a single part of us that has not been affected by the fall and if we are to be redeemed, there's not a single part of us which the Son of God must not come into contact with and restore just as he restores the lepers by virtue of his contact with him. And so in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Son of God makes contact with human nature. He passes through all of the things that it means to be human. That means that Jesus was a fetus at one point. Ponder that. And by virtue of passing through that process, he sanctifies it. Jesus was a child at one point. He skinned his knees. And by virtue of passing through that, he raises it up with him. Jesus went through puberty. God help him, which I'm sure he did. And by virtue of coming into contact with it, he elevates it. Jesus took a job and he gave dignity back to work. Jesus owned a house and by virtue of that, gave dignity to it. He was a son and by virtue of that, he redeems what it means to be a child child in the human family. He takes a bride for himself in the church and he redeems and sanctifies marriage. And ultimately, finally, we get to the 50% correct answer. That Jesus, in the words of Paul, gives himself as a ransom for all. And finally, after touching every part of our humanity, he comes into contact with death. And death is destroyed by virtue of its contact with the sinless son of God. That is why it is only Christ alone through which we will approach God because it is in Christ alone that God has approached us. That is the profound weight of the incarnation. That is why there is only one mediator between God and man and it is the man Christ Jesus. This is profoundly good news because um, I'll tell you this if we were to anchor our prayers or our confidence before God in our abilities then our hope would be in constant jeopardy Um, I, I just know myself well enough to know that if any of this depended on me I would be doomed But I also know Christ well enough to know that if all of this depends on him, then nothing can separate us from his kindness. That is why we say that it is in Christ alone our hope is found. That there is no other way to approach God but by through him because in him God has drawn near to us. 
and taken every single broken part of us and by virtue of being united to Christ in the incarnation, raised it up to newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we are not worthy to call you Father. We do that because Christ has given us that right. And we thank you that in your mercy, in spite of our rebellion, you sent your son to take on flesh, to dwell among us, to live a human life, to die under your curse and our just judgment for sin, to be raised for our justification. God, I pray that the exclusivity of Christ would not be something that we see as an embarrassing aspect of Christianity that we skirt around, but it would be a vibrant reality, the source of our confidence that Christ is the anchor of our hope, that it's through Christ alone that we can approach you. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at your right hand. Do all these things we ask in his name by the power of your spirit, and we say amen.